0: Jesus comes into the temple in Jerusalem and he walks where people go to pray. He steps into that court of the Gentiles where everybody is welcome, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, Jew and non-Jew, pagan, everybody from all over the known world was welcome to come and pray. But it's late on this particular day, and Jesus has come in with the setting sun behind him as the temple faces the eastern wall and the eastern gate. You can imagine the sun drifting just below that wall. The temple priests had their own challenges. Zoom wasn't one of them, but um, <laughs> But they had their own challenges nonetheless. I can picture them ending a busy day, some of them coming to the end of their shift, maybe getting ready for the changeover, and the crowds have gone, and the sacrifices have all been bought and made. And it's quiet, and there Jesus is, standing there. Jesus had been there quite a few times to come and read the Scriptures, to hear the Scriptures, to, to be with people and to teach and be taught. It is, in a sense, holy ground. And I wouldn't want us to lose that Sense of what the temple was for Jesus and his disciples, that it was holy ground, it was a place to meet and pray. He observes all of these things, maybe has memories of good times, and then he quietly leaves. It was only hours earlier that they had come into the city down from the Mount of Olives, through the Eastern Gate, and people would have known the story from Zechariah, the prophecy that said that the Messiah would come down from the Mount of Olives and enter Jerusalem. In the Jewish book of 1 Maccabees, we hear the story of how Judas Maccabeus led the offensive against the Syrian occupiers and freed the nation of Israel. He was known as the Hammer, a famous military commander. And it's from that story that we get the idea of palm crosses because that's what the people did. They lay down palm crosses at the feet of Judas Maccabeus' army as they went by, cheering on in liberation of the nation of Israel celebrating military victory. And so the Messiah would come, they said. He would come with his battalions and divisions, his cavalry, his infantry, his officers mounted on horseback. He himself would be carrying a royal standard, a spear, a sword by his side, wearing royal robes, maybe of purple, but the messiah comes and there are none of these things he descends into the city with armies of children laughing not divisions of armored lancers laughing children and cheering crowds who who know do you know they know that this is jesus the messiah they know how do they know I can only think that it was the Spirit of God that led them to that understanding that this was the Messiah. The Spirit among them, bringing people close to Jesus, the sick, the hungry, the poor, the outcast. But he doesn't seem to have authority, he has no rank, he has no insignia. But maybe his authority is of a different kind. Maybe, well, maybe it's about the healings and the signs and wonders that people had seen. The miracles that had happened at the touch of Jesus' hand. Always speaking peace, love, kindness, forgiveness, Always glorifying his Father in heaven. But he has come to make a plan in the temple on that day, for he returns in in his person, his words, the way he walks. He carries the authority of the Father on that day. He turns over the tables, he's memorized every part of the layout. Where they were, who would be there, and the crowds watched amazed. They were amazed at how he stared earthly power down and said no. By his authority, the king of the universe, without one warhorse. But there was a donkey. There was a colt. He sends for it, and he and that colt ride into Jerusalem, the city which he had avoided up until this point, because this is his father's timing. It's the father's timing that he would enter as king, and it was the father's timing that he would be killed as a common criminal celebrated one day, adored, cheered, and encouraged, and just a few days later convicted by a court of his peers, whipped, hung on a cross, sentenced to death. So where, you might ask, is his authority in that? I think it is there. It's there in one word. Hosanna. Hosanna. That's what the people say, you see, when they still love him, before they turn against him, before they abandon him. Would I do any different? Would I? I don't know. Some days I'm not so sure. It's something I can't bear to think about because because I know I am deeply human. I know the flaws of my own heart. I know of all the times our Navy squadron turned down missions that would have saved lives of American troops in Afghanistan. I know because it was my job to turn them down. Sure my commanding officer had the final call but I issued the order I could try and explain it, why it seemed to make sense at that time, but it sure doesn't now. And I know my own heart, and being broken up about it, being sorry for it, doesn't bring those Marines and soldiers back. It doesn't assuage the grief and loss of their families. And yet I'm here to tell you today that I have been forgiven. If you leave with nothing else today, know that I have been forgiven. And in that same way, we all have been forgiven in the name of Jesus. Jesus has the authority to do that. I know my own heart. And I don't know what side I would have been on on that Palm Sunday so many, many years ago. But you know, Jesus' authority still reigns in spite of my limitations and in spite of my failure. It is the authority in one word Hosanna! Do you know what it means? It means save us. Save us, Lord Jesus. Save us, Messiah. Save us as individuals. Save us as families. Save us as a nation. Save us as a race of human beings. But save us, Lord Jesus. This is the ground-shaking, curtain-tearing, tomb-emptying truth of the world. It has every ounce of authority to heal the blind Bartimaeus in that bit just above this story, if you read above. And every ounce of authority to clear the temple courts of earthly business so that the Father can start doing His heavenly business. You know, I don't think He had anything against the individuals there. But I think He did need to declare His authority in His Father's house. Jesus calls us to be a church where we can say... Hosanna. You know, it's important to be a transparent church family. It's important to let our foibles show, to not try and be perfect or to present some kind of perfect exterior. Those who know me know that I'm not very good at that anyway, but there is a calling for us as a church and I think as individuals, which is to become really good or at least practiced in telling our stories. You know, I I want to speak against any shame that anyone would feel about anything difficult in their own life. Any perceived failure or inability to do something. I just want to say that God doesn't view it that way. He views those things in our life as opportunities. Opportunities for Him to demonstrate His power. You know, when we give our testimony, when we tell our story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it allows God this opportunity to redeem our past. What do I mean by that? It allows Him the opportunity to use that story to talk about how He changes people. And so church, I guess is less of a museum where we can put our faith on display and it's more of a hospital where we can come as wounded people where where those who have been healed can 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 show their scars and say look look what God has done for me and he can do that for you i've seen it happen And people will come. They will come. Because so many people need healing. So many people need wholeness. Encouragement. Love. And we are placed. Not without coincidence. In the middle of this community stuck in the middle, you can't go through Lark Hall without bumping into this church. You can't, can you? It's no coincidence that God has put this place here. That we are here. And that we are successors of a very long lineage of Christ followers who have worshipped in this place. Get comfortable with your story. I encourage you to tell it as people come in. Amen.